say this thing that's nobody likes me, everybody eats me, I'm going to go out and eat worms and die. It, <laughs> so I don't sad. know where that came from. But in elementary school, that was something that I used to say. And I went by and I was kind of a sad kid. And if that's the way you think, that's what you get. So when you can learn to love yourself unconditionally, and unconditionally is the big key word there, and then extend that love to everybody else. Don't judge anybody. When you take judgment out of your life, when you put forgiveness into your life, when you put kindness as a priority in your life, happiness as a priority, everything changes. chances are mental illness has affected your life in some way. But did you know that one in five Americans will experience mental health issues at some point in their lives? So whether it's you or a family member or loved one who has a hard time maintaining their mental health, know that you're not alone. Take heart and know that the struggle is real, y'all. At least for one in five Americans it is, which is why I've created the Love Makes You podcast so that the people like you and me who struggle with their mental health pretty frequently on the daily, who may or may not find it hard to just be a human today, can connect and realize that we are not alone and that there are many resources available to us if only we would become more aware of them. So with that, I'd like to welcome you to the Love Makes You podcast. Welcome to this next episode of the Love Makes You podcast. I am so excited to share this most recent interview with you all. I was able to have a wonderful conversation with my friend Emily. Emily Thoreau Threat is an Amazon bestselling author of her book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. She also has her own podcast called The Grief and Happiness Podcast, and she is just an extremely inspiring and intelligent person. She has experienced a lot of loss and grief in her own life, and she was able to use her experiences to not only learn from them and create a life that she loves and is full of joy and purpose and fulfillment, but she also was able to use that experience to help other people. And it was really insightful being able to discuss the topic of grief with her and what it means to grieve and how to work with grief and process our emotions around loss. So I really hope you are able to get some good wisdom out of it, just like I did. But before we start the interview, I just wanted to take a couple moments to tune into our breath together. So for anyone listening, if you want to take a few moments with me to come back to your breath, take a few deep breaths, find a comfortable position and just get present 
uh, this is your moment to do so. So go ahead and find a comfortable seat wherever you are if you can. If you are busy or driving or otherwise occupied, that's totally fine too. Really just tuning into one's breath and being present, allowing the unnecessary, maybe overwhelming, maybe obnoxious thoughts, looping thoughts, just settle for a few moments and giving yourself this brief bit of peace. So go ahead and find a comfortable seat if you can, creating a long spine, shoulders down, away from the ears, and just really coming into the present moment. On your next exhale, go ahead and release all the air out of your lungs. And on your next inhale, through the nose, filling up, expanding through the lungs, the belly, the chest, really just filling the whole thing up. And once you've completely filled your lungs and belly, go ahead and try and take a couple more small sips of air in at the top. Just really fill them up. And exhale, sigh it all out. <sighs> I go ahead and inhale one more time through the nose. Expanding through the lungs, the belly, just allowing the whole chest to expand. And once it's full, taking a couple more sips of air in at the top as much as you can. And exhale it all out through the mouth. <sighs> and last time, inhaling through the nose, inflating the lungs and the belly, expanding through the whole chest, and taking a couple more sips of air in at the top if you can. And exhale it all out through the mouth. <sighs> I hope that was helpful to everybody listening. I hope you were able to give yourself those few brief moments of peace. And let's dive into this next episode. So the one thing that I wanted to mention before diving into the interview was why I felt that it was so important to talk about grief with someone who is very knowledgeable about grief and loss because I don't know if everybody can relate to the loss of a loved one or the death of multiple loved ones or even just failed relationships and what have you, but we all go through loss all the time. Every single day, we are experiencing emotions that might not be too comfortable and learning to process those feelings in a healthy way and to feel those feelings so as to process and move through them is really important to our mental health. And Emily is a really great example of someone who has had the courage to do that. So if there's one takeaway that you guys can get from this conversation, I would love for the understanding to get across somehow just that it's necessary to feel our feelings even if we have to be extremely gentle with ourselves if we have to go into really uncomfortable places within ourselves it's all okay and it's all necessary to work our way through uncomfortable feelings 
and find peace on the other side. We tend to, as humans, especially today in this culture, we often bottle up our emotions, don't express things, keep things to ourselves, and that is really, it's not good for our mental health at all. Uh, It just tends to get bottled up and fester and causes more issues, both physically and mentally. So a big reason why I wanted to share this conversation with you all and provide you with these resources that Emily is sharing is so that you can realize that feeling your feelings is not only necessary, but a good thing. Processing them is a good thing, and it might not feel very good in the moment, but I promise you there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I promise you that something good will come from allowing yourself to sit in the uncomfortableness for a bit, to feel what needs to be felt in order to let it go. So with that, thank you all so much for tuning in. I really appreciate the listens and I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation that I had with Emily as much as I enjoyed having it. Let's get to it. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Love Makes You podcast. I am here with my friend and the highly intelligent, extremely inspiring Emily Throw Threat. Uh, she is also a podcast host, host of the Grief and Happiness podcast. She wrote a book as well. She's the author of Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief where she gives people practical tools, um, inspiring tidbits to help them work their way through their own grief and that whole process because it's a pretty interesting term, grief. We don't really know. it. There's no particular pattern with the way that it works. There's There are five stages, as they say, but there's a lot of um, ways that one can go about processing and feeling their own grief. So Emily's been through a lot. Um of grief herself. And I love that she used her experiences to try to help other people and inspire other people who have been through that kind of thing. So welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this interview with me. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I I love to, um, I guess, share, share the word, spread the word (laughs) of (laughs) things about grief because it's for so long people have associated grief with you're just sad all the time and and you don't get over it is that sadness always remains and and i really like to show people that they can grieve actively grieve and take care of themselves and be happy at the same time wow yeah i mean that's kind of a a conundrum for a lot of people to think that you can experience both but they really are like flip sides of the same same coin. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself and your story and what led you to this grief work? Sure. I have uh, dealt with an extraordinary amount of, of death and dying in my life, uh, a lot more than than just the usual person. And I started when my uh, family purchased a ambulance company when I was 13 years old. And back in those days, you only had to be 14 years old and have an advanced first aid certificate to be an ambulance attendant. And wow. so I started going on on ambulance calls on my 14th birthday. Uh, and the first one was a, a head-on car crash with multiple fatalities. And it uh, 
really made me start looking at life in a different way. So I did a um did that and ended up being in a in a situation where I I became a nurse that I I didn't anticipate that I was going to do that. I didn't go to college for that to start off with, but then I wanted something that I could rely on for an income. So while I was finishing the rest of my college and something to help me pay for it. So I became a licensed vocational nurse. And in doing that, I was dealing with death and dying all the time. I, I worked in the operating room and labor and delivery and the emergency room and had a lot to do with death there. And something happens to people who are nurses uh, often that they kind of become the neighborhood nurse so that <laughs> when something happens, they come knocking on your door. And so I ended up spending time at the, at the bedside of uh, many different dying people, that, some that I didn't even know and others that, that I did know. And I think it's really important if you if a person is is dying that somebody can be there with them. I think that's really important. So I I did all that. Then I had lots of relatives die. I made a list once that it kind of really kind of blew me away. I knew people that had been I had two relatives killed in in different car crashes. Uh, I've known people who've been murdered. I've known lots of people who've dealt with cancer. I've dealt with from infants through young children, through um, college age people, through all the way through people who are dying at ages when they're more expected to die. So I've I've had lots of that kind of experience. And more recently, both of my parents died and then my only sister died. And then I had two husbands die, um, ironically, both from the same thing. The, the second one didn't have it when the, the first one uh, died, <laughs> so, or not when, when the first one died, but when, when I got together with the second one, he wasn't sick. <laughs> he didn't have a problem, but he ended up getting the same thing. So, And I, I took care of both of those husbands for the last two years of their lives. So I've had lots of experience. And also my husband, Jacques, the first of those guys to die, was a bioethicist and his specialty was living and dying. And he facilitated a bereavement group in our community that didn't have anything like that at the time. He was hot. He brought hospice into that community because they didn't have hospice then either. So, and I participated in all that with him as he was going through. So I've, I've been for my whole life, looking at death and grief and comforting people from all different perspectives and in many different ways. And all that led me to after Jacques, my most recent, not Jacques, Ron, my most recent husband to die. Uh, after he transitioned, I was looking for uh, my purpose in my life at that point, because I'd spent so much time taking care of him and before that, taking care of my other husband. And I I still was I, working, teaching writing at the university, but it it wasn't full time at that point, and I just felt like I needed something constructive to do, and I worked on that quite a bit, and discovered that I was helping myself a lot by writing about my feelings and what I was experiencing, and I thought the kinds of things that I was writing, I wasn't writing it to share with anybody at that point. 
But the things that I was writing about, I thought, you know, if I could talk to other people who were in the process of um, dealing with their grief and show them different ways that they could write that would help them, that I would like to do that. So I did. And I really liked to do that. And the people really liked it. And that ultimately led to me writing my book. And that led to my podcast and led to my, um, I facilitate a group called the Grief and Happiness Alliance that we created and created a nonprofit organization to go along with it that supports that um, alliance and the meetings and the Zoom and all the stuff that goes along with it so that nobody that comes to the meetings has to pay to get help with their grief. That's really cool. That's such a good offering for people to have that support. Well, yeah, you have experienced a lot of grief. Oh my gosh, you seem like an expert at this point. Well, I wanted to, I guess, first ask you how you would define grief, because I looked it up. It's a pretty ambiguous term. People don't really, like like you said, you know, everybody thinks that you're just sad and you're sad for a long time, but it's far deeper than that. And I'm just curious as someone who's been through that so much, how would you define grief? Grief is, it's an interesting word because everybody experiences it differently. Like I told you, I've had lots of different experiences every time. Every experience was different because it depends on the relationship to the person, the the way the person died, um, whether you got to be with them or you didn't get to be with them. It, it depends on a lot of different things and it'll, it will hit you different ways. And some people will fall apart right away when it happens and be just intensely um, unhappy and and kind of lost and then feeling better in a shorter period of time. And other people don't deal with it at all when it happens and years later can get hit with it. I was just thinking about somebody that I had worked with that her, her mom died when she was younger and she just didn't deal with it. She just didn't understand what was going on, didn't deal with it and moved on. And it was many years later when it suddenly dawned on her that, well, I didn't have my mom when I would have really loved to have had a relationship with her. I She didn't remember her that well. And she was grieving that lack of the, the memories. She was grieving lots of different things that, that other people wouldn't necessarily grieve because they didn't have that kind of experience. Right. And you, you mentioned, too, about the, the five stages. And the the five stages were written by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross when she was writing about the five stages of dying, not of grief. And then people just started using them for grief. And she, she ultimately wrote something about how she could apply them to the five stages of grief to die, to um, grieving and, as opposed to dying. But they initially weren't for that process at all. And people have gone on since then to say, well, there's 14 stages of grief, or there's only three stages of grief. And it, that that's what makes the, the word confusing, because it's different to everybody. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it depends on what you're grieving, who you're grieving, all those kinds of things. Why do you think, I mean, I have my own ideas, you know, like you said, with this woman who took a very long time to grieve the loss of her mother why do you think it's people are so reluctant to grieve to really 
you know, let themselves have that process. I'm not sure that it's a conscious choice. It's not a, a matter of allowing themselves to. They just don't know what they're supposed to do or they don't know what would help them or and that's just really common especially if it's the first time you've lost someone that you love that you it's like okay now what do I do is as much with Jacques uh, is is we'd been married 22 years and gone through all that stuff about grief together he taught the the class at the college that all the nurses had to take um to on living and dying to teach nurses how to deal with grief and I'd, I'd been through all that with him and then he died and it was like, okay, now what do I do? You know, yeah. I just, I, I couldn't assimilate it into me. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, how does one, we're not really given, you know, a guidebook on how to navigate that kind of thing, especially when it, it just shows up so differently for every person. Yeah. That makes sense. I do feel having listened to your audiobook. And just knowing you as a person, I think it takes a huge amount of courage to be able to go into those feelings and let yourself have them and be gentle with yourself throughout that process. So I love that you in your book are constantly telling people it's okay, you know, have your experiences, have have your emotions, allow it to be part of you and it's okay. I thought that was really, really helpful in your book. Well, it's Yeah, it's it's really important because people who don't allow themselves to feel, they're just stacking it up, you know? And that builds just more and more pressure until all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, what happened to me? How, how could that be? Right, right. And sometimes people don't really even realize that they're doing that to themselves. And that was one of the things I wanted to talk with you about because I do feel that when we don't allow ourselves to feel our feelings, when we when they start to stack up, it can have a really poor effect on our health. So if you were to give people some guidelines on how to properly grieve, going through the experience of a loss, even if it's not a death, how do people do that? How would you guide them? through that process? Well, the, the very first thing I always tell people when they say, well, you know, how do I do this? What am I supposed to do? And, and the very first thing I always say is take care of yourself, because that's usually the first thing to go. People either forget to eat, or they eat way too much uh, of the wrong things, or they can't sleep, or they sleep all the time, or they isolate themselves and, and don't talk to anybody. That's that's much more common than, than going out and being with people. The, the people that have to go back to work right away can have a really hard time with segmenting what's happening to them because they can go to work. And I had somebody tell me that they had been at work for like, they, they had only been off for their three-day bereavement leave. And when they went back to work, like the week after they came back to work, the his boss came up to him and said, aren't you over that yet? You know, you got to get back to work here. And he was just having a really, really hard time functioning with doing his job. And he loved his job and had always been able to easily do it. And it just, he couldn't do it at that point. And he realized he ended up having to take personal time off, uh, which was was also a challenge because that's not always available. And it, it's not like you're getting your regular income and being able to go to work. But there's only, you, you really have to take care of you. And if that's what you need to do to take care of you, then you need to do that. 
some people just plain change their jobs from one to another. They can't go back to what they were doing before because life is just totally different for them. And some places you get no support at all. I know my my dad died very suddenly. So nobody was even thinking about that or prepared for it. And um, he on, yes, it was Sunday night, my mom called and or Monday night, my mom called and said that they've taken your dad to the hospital. But they sent me home because they said they were taking care of him and and that it was it was okay that uh, she could come back and visit him the next day and she called me about an hour later and said they just called me and told me he's gone and so it was it was that sudden and we truly weren't prepared for it so at the time I was teaching at the university and I, I called in and I said I'm I'm can't be at work the rest of the week. You need to get substitutes for me because my father just died suddenly. Nobody said, oh, okay, I'll take care of it. Or I'm sorry for your loss. Not that I like that phrase, but they didn't say anything. And I I went on with that week and it, it was a really big deal with my dad because he was very prominent in the community and all these things were going on and events that we had to go to and a really big thing. And when I went back to school after after all of that, to just walk back into what my life had been before. And nobody said, I heard about your dad, or how are you doing? Nobody did that. It was like nothing happened. It was he died in another town. So it wasn't like anybody in the community there knew him. And they just went on like nothing ever happened. And that was so hard. It was hard enough as it was, but to just, how do you do that? That actually rolls pretty perfectly into this question next question i had for you do you think we would be better equipped to grieve or hold space for this process and support other people who are going through a grieving period if we were more comfortable and better acquainted with death as a culture and society because we tend to like kind of shove things under the rug you know maybe that's why nobody talked about it is because everybody's so uncomfortable about the concept of death yeah do you think that might have something to do with it I, I agree with you there. We we don't talk about it. We don't make it normal. We don't make it a part of life. And the, the thing that is absolutely guaranteed is that we're all going to die, you know? <laughs> and a lot of people just can't face that. They can't deal with that at all. They just can't look that far into the future, even though the future might be this afternoon, you know, <laughs> when, right. whenever it is. I just had... Uh, somebody who I was working with on the production for my next book, just 31 years old, went on vacation and died in a fire on, on vacation. And shock to everybody. And people just didn't know what to say or do. It, it's been, uh, we're all just kind of working through it together and, and supporting each other how we can. And I know my, my publisher that's helping me with my, or putting my next book out that'll be out real soon. I said, she said, I think we, you came to us as an author because you can help all of us go through this process. So wow. I've, I've given them lots of resources and, and helping that, but you, you never know. You never know when that moment's going to be. And if you've never dealt with it at all and never thought about it, it's just going to be that much harder. So, and you can, you can do it in easy ways, like watching a, a movie or a, there's a TV series on right now that I just love. 
oh, and I always forget the name of it, about two two psych- psychologists who, the, one of them's wife died young. Um, Is it Shrinking on Apple shrinking, TV? Shrinking, thank you. I keep <laughs> trying to say psych, but that's a that's a different show that doesn't have anything to do with that, but it's Shrinking. And it's it's funny. It's, it's a really, really well done. And you think, well, how's grief funny? Well, it's nice to be able to look at it like it's not all sobbing and crying all the time. And by seeing the kinds of things that they're going through, it kind of lightens it up for you so that that it's easier to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I love that show. I've been watching it. I actually watched it last night. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Great show. <laughs> yeah. It's- really, really good. And when there's another one that just came out that I tried to watch and I, I'm not quite into that, that um, I don't know what her name is, but she was Jane the Virgin in that series, which is a wonderful series. And she's doing one about being a, a reporter that gets stuck on doing, writing the obituaries. And oh wow, the, the people uh, who she's writing the obituaries come to her in in the series and it's it's really interesting and brings up a lot of thoughts and questions and so if you look at things from an impersonal way that you're not involved with then it kind of breaks the ice and it takes the edge off because you've thought about it in different ways before Hmm. and i think that that's really valuable if you can there's there's some beautiful books that, that you can read i just listened to to one that probably nobody else would have ever heard of, and I can't tell you the name of it, but it was about Nathaniel Hawthorne and his wife and their relationship. And I studied him when I, w- I was uh, got my master's in English and had to read tons of literature. And he was one of the people that I read. And it was so beautiful reading about their life and how they got together and living in those times and uh, what happened uh, as, he w- as he died. And it, it was just really beautiful. And that when you read something that's beautiful like that about somebody who dies, it kind of helps you see that it's not all bad, you know, that there's there's good things from it. What are some of, I mean, obviously you started doing all this work with grief and wrote your book and started the podcast. What are some of the good things that came out of your experiences with death of your, with the death of your husbands and loved ones? What came out of it for me are relationships. I have different relationships with people now than I've ever had before. And people question me when I say this, but I can honestly say I'm happier now than I ever have been. And it's because of, I really started exploring happiness and the the meaning of happiness and how to be happy and what can you do that can help you be happier. And it's, it's really good for me. I never used to smile that much. I was always very serious. I was always intent on what I was doing. And it, it just was work a lot of the times and didn't smile and laugh a lot because just, I just thought that wasn't my personality. And now I do. And I've met one person. It, it's kind of interesting. When I, I wrote my uh, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief, I approached the publisher and said, they had several grief titles in, in their collection that they had published and that they sold. I said, 
How about if we put a panel of grief authors together and then offer it to people that we can give presentations for you? And it was during the pandemic because of, of all things <laughs> for my book to come out in the, in the pandemic uh, on death uh, was interesting in itself. But good timing. Some, yeah, I somehow they arranged for us to do uh, like a webinar for Unity Church. And Unity Church is, is a big church. They, you know, they have individual Unity Churches in lots of communities. And then there's an over, you know, it's like if you're Catholic, you belong to the Catholic Church, but there's, there's a whole Catholic Church. This is like the whole Unity Church was the people that we were dealing with. And they have a place in Missouri called Unity Village, which is their headquarters and, and everything comes from out of there. But their Unity Church is all over the place. And they approached the headquarters and they liked the idea. And so they they put this uh, webinar together with four grief authors and a moderator who was a unity minister and somebody to manage the chat, which was def desperately needed because we had over 2000 people online. Uh, it, it was really amazing. And it was a really wonderful experience. And I didn't know anybody in the group. I was going in blind with these people and not that familiar with anything about what they did or, or unity or anything, but we, we did it. And it was a really, really good experience. And I liked the guy who was doing the moderation, who had been a, a, a hospice nurse for over 20 years, not just as a nurse, but ran hospices and set hospices up and knew hospice in and out. So he dealt with tons of people with death and dying. And they approached him because this was so successful that they said that they wanted to do a retreat at Unity Village, which is, it's, it's a beautiful place. It's got a hotel and everything there. Um, and they they wanted to do a retreat there uh, for grief as their first thing when they opened the village back up for people to be able to come back in after the pandemic. And they asked him to moderate it, moderate it. And they said they wanted him to do it with another Unity minister. And he said, well, I will do it, but I don't, want to do it with another unity minister. I want to do it with Emily. And I had wow. only dealt with him in this, this <laughs> one thing that we had done. Well, we co-facilitated that. I went back to Missouri to, to do it. And that's the first time I actually met him in person. And the, the grief retreat was really wonderful. And we just became good friends after that. We've I've, I've spoken about grief at his church online virtually, and he has joined the uh, board of directors for the Grief and Happiness Alliance nonprofit organization. And the board is thrilled with him because he's got so much experience in a way that nobody else on the board has. And I, I just and and all the people that are on the board, most of them. When I decided I wanted to do the Grief and Happiness Alliance, I thought, I don't know what people are going to react like to grief and happiness. I just didn't know whether that was going to be something somebody would come to. So I did a pilot program and I invited a whole lot of people that I either knew well or wanted to know better that I knew who they were to do the pilot program with me. And, and we did that. We went through three different sessions. And then at the end, I said, well, what do you think? And one of them said very, very sternly, this is an idea whose time has come. Mm. And I listened to her and we did it. And, and it's been 
really great that way. But the, the people who are on the board now are people that I've known in different ways throughout my life, but we've gotten closer now than we ever have been. I even have my, my step-granddaughters on the board, who's Jacques' granddaughter, that uh, I didn't have much of a relationship before this with her because they lived a long ways away. And we just throughout their lives didn't we you know we'd talk on the phone at christmas and send gifts back and forth but hadn't really gotten to know each other but when she graduated from college i invited her over to maui where i live to spend some time with me and it was it was amazing she's very young when her grandfather died and she didn't really remember him and she said what can you tell me so i got out all my pictures and we sat and we talked for hours about him and their relationship and the family and all these things that she hadn't gotten from any place else. And we got to be really close and she got really interested in the grief and happiness Alliance. So she's on the board and it actually has led to her uh, deciding that she wants to go uh, be a social worker and because she can see the different ways she can help people that she hadn't really thought of before she started being on the board and so she just got accepted into a graduate program uh, to get her master's in social work. So we've got, cool. she's there. And then these other friends that I've had for a long time that I hadn't been that closely in touch with, but now we meet regularly on Zoom from all over the place and the relationships are wonderful. And we're always smiling and happy and having a good time with the kind of service that we're doing. And they, they don't, hesitate with the idea of grief and happiness that it can be at the same time and that's how it it is really wonderful for it to be yeah i think it's really hopeful and inspiring for a lot of people because you don't think that both can exist together how do you hold the grief in such a way that you can still say this is the happiest i've ever been well i do things that that help me for instance i write letters to the people I've known who've who died, um, mostly to to Ron and Jacques, but other people too. And sometimes when I write them a letter, I just get a really strong feeling that I need to write a letter back to me from them. And I do that and I get lots of answers and I I feel I'm not sure. I can't I can't tell you for sure whether where those letters are coming from, whether it's just what I think I want to hear or whether it's a higher source or where it's coming from, but whatever it is, is very healthy for me because I, I work things out by doing that. So I, I feel comforted and supported and in a way that, that is really good. And I'm, I'm happy with what I'm doing. And it, it's kind of interesting. You wouldn't think it would be that way, but I've gotten closer to, to friends that I've had before that and we've had really wonderful experiences that I don't think would have happened if I would have just kept living my life the way I'd been doing it. Wow. Yeah. Just, I think being open to seeing what life has for you outside of the pain seems like a really big practice of yours. Mm -hmm. um, what are some other practical tools that you would suggest for people? I know there's a whole list of them in your book, but maybe like the top five practices that have changed your life and your ability to live with grief and be happy? Well, one of them is to know that your life is different now and do things that embrace that. For instance, I've always loved to be creative and 
I thought it would be like fun to take a drawing class because I always thought I couldn't draw. I just, with all the stuff I did in theater with set design and everything else, I was never comfortable with my drawing. But I thought, I'm just going to take a class and see, well, I've fallen in love with drawing and I can draw and I'm surprised. <laughs> and it's it's kind of like a form of meditation for me that that is really helpful for me. So not only do I meet people when I go to the class, because uh, I, I go to the Hui Art Center here on the island that's fabulous, but I also do classes uh, online and I got into painting too, especially watercolors. And that is all with like watching YouTube videos and that sort of thing. And I didn't used to take the time to do things like that just for enjoying them. So that sort of thing is really good. Taking time to read books that I've always wanted to read. Taking time to visit with people that I've always wanted to visit. One thing I did after Jacques died that uh, it's, I think, like my favorite thing that I did because it just radically changed everything for me. And that was I had been sitting alone for about a year after uh, Jacques died. And I just didn't want to keep doing that. And I didn't know what to do or how to go or where to go or anything else. Um, he'd been, we'd been really involved in the community and we knew tons of people, but the longer he was sick, the further away the people stayed. When he first got sick, everybody was there. They'd come see him in the hospital and bring flowers and visit and do all that sort of thing. But the longer he was sick, they, they just kind of dropped off till the, the last, oh, at least six months of his life. Nobody was coming at all. We weren't seeing people at all. And after he died, they didn't like pick back up you know they didn't like invite me places or that sort of thing which i thought would have been nice so i i really wasn't doing anything and i wasn't taking time to uh read or or watch movies or or do anything at at all i did start crocheting i crocheted a ton of scarves and ended up donating them to a fundraiser who was having a, a silent auction thing. And they were, they were very grateful for that. But it was something that was kind of mindless that I could just keep me busy. But I, I thought, I got to do more than that. That's not going <laughs> to really uh, support me emotionally. And so at New Year's, I decided I had to I had to make a change. And I thought, well, I'll write re New Year's resolution resolutions. And then I thought, that hasn't worked so well in the past. <laughs> So I really thought about it a lot. And what I came up with was that I was going to accept invitations. And when I came up with that, I thought, why am I thinking this? Because nobody's invited me any place to do anything. But the feeling was so strong that I needed to do that, that I said, okay, that's that's going to be my intention for this year. I'm going to accept invitations. And as soon as I committed to that, the invitations started coming in. And they were things that I never would have thought of doing before, that it wouldn't have even been on my radar. But it led to wonderful experiences with new people. I met all kinds of new people, did all kinds of different things than, than I wouldn't have done before. And that really supported me to be able to, to just do something. 
And I, I think that's the whole thing is do something. It doesn't really matter so much what it is, but do one thing. And if that doesn't work, do something else. And yeah. not everything was something that I kept continuing forever. For instance, the, the first thing that happened was I got invited to be on the editorial board for the newspaper. Uh, it was fabulous. It was a year-long position, and it was so interesting. I met so many people uh, you know, famous people would come into our, our meetings to pitch their ideas and try to get the support of the newspaper because it was it was a very big newspaper. And so I, I met and talked to people that I never would have seen in person under any other circumstances. Then I was invited to take the layperson's position on the ethics committee at the regional medical center because my husband had been in a professional capacity on that committee and they knew that I had worked with him and that sort of thing. And they thought that I would be a good person to just represent the community on the committee. And it was very interesting because their jobs were like when, when people couldn't make decisions or there wasn't a decision maker available, somebody had to be responsible for a decision. And so they would bring it to us and say, okay, like, do we turn off the respirator on this person or that sort of thing? And we'd have to examine all the facets that went into that. And it was wow. really interesting. Yeah. That's <laughs> a big deep. responsibility. Yeah, it was. And it, again, it was a limited term and I did it while, while I did it. And it, it kind of opened me up and I met different people and I thought about things that I hadn't thought about before. And I, there were a lot of other things too. I ended up um, being on the crew for a, a ultra marathon bicycle race across the country. Uh, you know? <laughs> <That's> cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it was really, really cool. I ended up uh, going by myself to Puerto Rico to visit Puerto Rico because my son-in-law's from Puerto Rico and I always wanted to know what it was like. And so I just booked a trip and went. So awesome. I, yeah, I started getting kind of brave. That that was like inviting myself on that trip. And somebody else, one of my colleagues at school, uh, we were talking about what we were going to do that summer. And I said, I don't know. And she said, well, I'm taking my sister to South Africa. And I said, oh, that sounds really cool. I'd like to do something like that. And she said, so come with us. So I did. <laughs> wow. How was that? Fabulous. I am so glad I went on that trip. It was an absolutely amazing experience. And we didn't go like tourists. So that that made it more interesting to me. But that that allowed me to start saying, okay, where else do I want to go? And after Ron uh, transitioned, I, I went to Tuscany and I went to Bali and I, I went by myself. I On those two, there was a group that I met when I was there that were all people who did ceramics. And it was an international ceramics organization that I belonged to. And we went to all these places where we actually got to learn different ceramic techniques like they did in those countries. Very cool. So yeah, it was it was classes and we got to see history of ceramics and their play. Oh, it was absolutely amazing. So I found a way to go so that I I was traveling by myself, but I was learning something new. I was doing something. I was traveling for a purpose, not to just go be a tourist and go on tours. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it to me, it's much more meaningful if you're, you're doing something specific in your travels. Yeah, I travel the same way. I like to have a purpose or a reason for going. I definitely would agree with that. So it seems like a lot of creating happiness after loss amidst grief is caring for oneself and investing in oneself and making that the priority after 
the loss. Is, That's right. Yeah. Not only, and you start out that way, but when you can, you can go from taking care of yourself to also seeing how you can support other people in the process, that kind of completes the circle, you know, makes it so that you don't feel so, well, I wouldn't say narcissistic because it's not narcissistic, but not, not just thinking of yourself, but right. you, you have to, it's like that thing when you fly where they tell you you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you put it like on the child you're traveling with. And if, if you don't take care of yourself first, you can't take care of anybody else. So if you find ways to take care of yourself first and do good self-care, then that leads you into opportunities that you can have for taking care of other people or helping them, supporting them, loving them on their way. Yeah, definitely. But taking care of yourself first, it's not a selfish thing to do. Mm -mm. I think that's a pretty common misconception. People tend to think that if, especially women, I would say, if we put ourselves before other people, then we're being selfish when really it's just self-preservation, self-care. God, if, if you're not going to look out for you, who is, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I am curious about your spiritual practices and connection with source or some sort of higher power. For me personally, I've always felt pretty connected to something bigger than myself. And when my brother died, I felt like that was all I had left of him. That's where he went, you know? So I, I needed that as a resource and as a way to find hope after that loss. Not everybody feels that way, but I'm curious what your practice is or what your relationship with the divine is like. What what I believe, what what I have learned in the process of my long life <laughs> is that I believe that everything is part of everything else. That we're all part of one giant whole. And that there there's got to be a source to that. And I call that source God. And I don't feel like I have to like go to church, but I do, um, I do take care of myself spiritually. Like I have, have my own practice. I, every morning I, I journal and I express gratitude. And I, that's a big part of my practice is gratitude. I write in my journal every day, something that brought me joy the day before. I believe in, in being kind. Um, I believe in being happy. And I, I just can't look at, at nature without saying, wow, you know, there's, there's so much so much out there that we haven't explored or haven't experienced or or whatever it is. I one one thing, uh, an example I can give you of that is that both my husbands had renal failure and that's kidney failure, and I had been reading about it and looking at things and I saw how the kidneys worked and saw a cross section of the kidneys and how what they look like and it looks kind of like all these little rivers that go together into a big river that comes out. And I was flying uh, someplace one day and looking out and saw what looked like a kidney to me that was uh, this cross section of the kidney that was a big, it was little rivers coming together into a, a one big river and going out. And then I started seeing that, that image in other places too, that, it's like using the same thing in a lot of different ways, and they they've got to be tied together somehow. And that might sound like kind of a weird thing, but like if if you look at look at the 
similarities between animals and, and humans. And, you know, we, we have similar organs. We do different things. Humans seem to be the only ones that actually talk now, but lots of, uh, lots of probably most animals and even organisms listen. They see, they taste, they eat, they poop. They, we've got a whole lot of things that are in common. So that something's got to have orchestrated this whole thing. And some of us pay attention and learn lessons and some of us, don't and mm-hmm. that that's what leads to the strife i think in our world is that, that people can't learn from or not can't they can if they want to people don't learn from mistakes in the in the past and things that happened in the past that could serve everybody if we would all just start being kind everybody could be kind to each other you can't kill somebody in a war if you're being kind to them you know so true so simple yet so complex i mean the human mind and because I know hurt people just hurt people you know Mm -hmm. so people who aren't kind there's always a reason why we do what we do or they do what they do and I mean I think I'm a gen generally kind person but I know there's moments when I'm not because I'm angry or feel entitled or I have trauma too just like every other person you know yeah this world could definitely benefit from more kindness but I also understand that we're all just hurting and broken and trying to find our way you know so then do you feel that in order to properly grieve or to come to terms with our loss that we need to make that connection as well that you've been talking about? I think it helps. I think people who have a a strong belief system, whatever it is, and there's lots of different belief systems, but if you have a strong belief system, it's, it's something that supports you on your journey. And if you don't, sometimes it's a little bit more challenging or a lot more challenging. It can be a lot more challenging, but it's all on an individual basis. Every single circumstance is going to be different. And it depends on how you look at it. Like I choose now to be happy. And that's that's a conscious choice that I've made. And a lot of people don't ever think about something like that. You know, they laugh when they want to laugh and they cry when they want to cry. And they don't think about the concept of choosing to be kind or choosing to be happy. But when you make that that choice, like you, you make a, a choice of knowing that there's a higher power that supports you and and wants the best for you and you want the best for yourself, then it's a lot easier to come by than if you think, just what popped in my head when I was a little girl, I used to sing or say this thing that's nobody likes me, everybody eats me, I'm going to go out and eat worms and die. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. But in elementary school, that was something that I used to say. And I went by and I was kind of a sad kid. And if that's the way you think, that's what you get. So when you can learn to love yourself unconditionally and unconditionally is the big key word there and then extend that love to everybody else don't judge anybody when you take judgment out of your life when you put forgiveness into your life when you put kindness as a priority in your life happiness is a priority everything changes does those four things the forgiveness the and or five things gratitude Forgiveness, gratitude, no judgment, and uh, be happy and be kind. You, you can live a 
beautiful life, even if it's been really tough up until this point, you can choose to, even if you add those things in one at a time and consciously make those decisions, it can be a huge difference. Those are beautiful nuggets that I will definitely have to write down after this because, I mean, this being a mental health podcast, you know, I think people tend to get caught up in their negative thought patterns and like habits of, you know, like you did when you were young, you just continue to repeat these negative things to yourself. But when we can bring some awareness and intentionality into that, you can decide. You you do have a choice. We don't always realize that we have a choice, but we, we do, I think. Another thing I wanted to ask you then kind of goes along with this theme. In your book, you mentioned a few times that it was very different, your experience of loss with your first husband, Jacques, versus your second husband, Ron, even though they both died from the same thing. What what was the difference? What Because it seemed like it was an easier transition maybe with Ron than it was with Jacques. And I mean, apart from obviously having had the experience of losing one husband already, Ron, I know, was a reverend and you guys mm -hmm. had that joint spiritual path and I know you mentioned in your book a lot that you were both very present with each other. Could you elaborate a little more on what the differences were, what, what, what you learned, and how living in that way made things easier? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Jacques was a, a philosopher, philosophy professor, and he, he lived philosophically. <laughs> He needed to have have uh, proof for everything, and and you could always make things better, or do things better, or do things differently. And there was a, a right and wrong way to everything, and it was it was really interesting. And the he the difference with him in his illness, and I didn't realize this unfortunately until within the hour that he died, was that. All that he was going through, all the the medical treatments and everything that was going on that were so incredibly painful and unpleasant for him, he was doing because he thought by going to the doctor or going to the hospital, he was going to get better and go back to normal. And intellectually, he was a brilliant man. He had to know that wasn't true. But that was what he was holding in his heart, that he was doing this so he'd get well. Where with Ron, he knew he wasn't going to get well, you know. They had the same thing. He knew what happened with shock, but he'd known other people that had had the same kind of illnesses and knew that it was a, a one-way journey. But we didn't live based on what we were anticipating we were going to do in the future. Or, you know, that, that him getting better and being able to do things because he got well. We lived on making the very most out of every moment. Really being mindful and living in the moment. And when we lived that way, we could be happy in spite of anything else that was going on. We could figure out ways around things. Uh, an example of this is uh, he died right at the beginning of August and his birthday was at the end of June. And one of his friends gave him a book that he really wanted to read for his birthday about um, Martin Luther King's last days. And the death of a king, I think, was the name of it. And he really wanted to read it. And he realized 
because he hadn't been really reading anything for a while, but he realized he couldn't read it because his eyes weren't working to to read like they had in the past. And it was just part of the process of what was happening to him with his illness. And so I read him that whole book out loud. We sat out on our lanai and took about a week and we'd read for a while and talk for a while and rest for a while. And it it was really amazing. And it was a really beautiful experience for both of us. Now, if we wouldn't have looked at it that way, he never would have gotten to know what was in that book. He would have been frustrating because he couldn't read the book that he wanted to know about. I would have been frustrated that he couldn't get what he, you know, he wanted the, the whole circle of that. But we didn't have any of that because we saw that there was a, a different situation that we were facing and we figured out a way to deal with it and did it with love and doing it in the moment. And it was, it was beautiful. So it, it's that from, and both of them went back and forth to the hospital a lot. We still had that sort of thing in there, but we just took care of whatever needed to be taken care of when it needed to be taken care of. That's beautiful. That's really inspiring that you would use something like that kind of situation for a positive experience with your husband. Well, no. let, let me give you another experience with that. When when it got right down to it, he'd been in the hospital for a week in really bad shape. It was I won't describe what was going on in that week because it was it was traumatic and difficult. But we got through it with love and compassionately. And finally, on the last day that he was in the hospital, he asked what the doctor was going to do for him, and he said, "Well, we've done this, and we've." He says, "I know what you've done." He said, "What are you going to do for me now?" <laughs> and they said, "Well, we can do more tests." And he said, "And what will they show? You know what? What's the purpose of me being here in the hospital?" And the doctor finally said, "Well, um, there's probably not a whole lot we could do for you. It took a long time for the doctor to get to the point where he could say something like that." And so Ron said, "Then I want to go home." And the doctor got really upset. He said, well, if you go home, it'd have to be against medical advice because you need to be in the hospital so we can provide all these services for you. And he goes, is that going to make me better? And of course, the doctor couldn't be given a positive answer to that. So he chose to go home. And he also chose not to go on hospice because he didn't feel like he was ready to be on hospice. This was on, on a Friday. And because he was discharged AMA, that meant that he couldn't have any of the medications that he'd been on in the hospital. They wouldn't send him home with prescriptions for them because he'd left against medical advice. So that meant that he didn't want their advice. So they were punishing him by not letting him have his medicine. So a good friend of mine uh, who'd been, or ours, who'd been in on everything that had been going on with, with Ron was a hospice nurse and I called her and she said just come on home and we'll take care of things so and since it was a Friday early evening when we got home I was very concerned about meds because even if we could figure out a way to get a prescription how are we going to get them at that point we probably have to wait for the weekend and that wasn't reasonable at that point well, my friend brought her friend, the hospice <clears throat> doctor, to our house, and she prescribed everything that we needed for him. And she took him, my friend took them to the pharmacy and brought the prescriptions back, and that was taken care of. And we also got somebody, she also had a hospital bed waiting for us when we got home. And I, this was just a matter of hours. <laughs> you know, We came home and everything was all set up and ready for us. And he said that he didn't, uh, he didn't want to go on hospice, but he would accept help 
from somebody that, that would come and say, so we arranged for 24 hour care, somebody to be there because I had been awake for 24 hours a day in the hospital with him for a week. And I, I could, I was just barely functioning. It was, it was really hard because I hadn't been eating much either. Cause it, it just wasn't in the picture with what we were dealing with. So we got somebody to come and stay with him. And by Monday morning, he said, okay, I'm ready to go in hospice now. And I said, okay. And I said, what do you want to do? And he said, well, what I want to do is let all my friends know. And the ones who want to come and say goodbye can come and say goodbye. And the ones who can't, I want to call them and FaceTime with them uh, so I can say goodbye. And so we made a list and we, we called everybody. Quite a few people came over and stayed here at the house with us. They were sleeping in neighbors' houses and on the floor and blow up mattresses and everything else so they could be here and spent the whole week with us. He called everybody that was on that list and actually got to FaceTime with them. And some of them are people that he hadn't talked to for years that were very important in his life. And he really wanted to talk to him. And he got to say goodbye to everybody and got to, he, he was, we were vegan at the time because that was supposed to be what was best for his renal disease. And he said he really wanted some barbecued ribs. So <laughs> we told one of our friends who we knew knew how to do barbecued ribs and he came over and fixed barbecued ribs for everybody who was there. And he was really happy with that. Other people came and sang to him. His his daughter, she's an executive at, at Paramount Pictures, but she, she grew, grew up dancing, loved dancing, loved hip hop. So she danced, and so everybody danced along with her and play her music. And somebody had come in and put on real peaceful, like meditative music. And somebody else had come in and go, "That's not going to do," and pump up the volume and do something peppy. <laughs> so it was people coming in and out, and it was just so it was so filled with love and happiness even though we all knew exactly what was going on that whole week. And uh, Friday, he, he got pretty sleepy on Thursday. And by Friday afternoon, he was sleeping and he transitioned Friday evening. And that wow. was it. But everybody was there. Every, it was all love. It was all beautiful. Where when Jacques died, since he still wasn't really dealing with what was going on, he wrote a book a long time ago that became the ethics textbook used around the world. And he revised it every couple of years. He wrote it in 1975. And so he revised it every couple of years to keep all the examples in it current. And he'd been working on this the this edition for his book for almost four years when it was supposed to only take two years, but it took that long with everything that was going on to get it done. And we finished that on a Friday morning. And it was the first time we got to submit it electronically. So we called his um, editor and the three of us were laughing and had carrying on on the phone and celebrating that we finally got this thing done. And he was so excited because I knew that he, that he needed, I didn't know when he was going to die, but I knew that he needed to get that done before he died. That was something that he needed to do. And then I fixed him lunch and was going to take him to dialysis. And, and when he was at, at lunch, he said to me, am I going to get better? And that's when it hit me that this whole time he was doing all that he was doing to get better. And I had to say, no, that's all I said. And I helped him out to the, the car to go to dialysis and had the door open. He sat down on the edge of his seat and he looked up at me and he said, I don't know if I should say this on your show or not, but he said, oh shit. And that was yeah. it. He was gone just like that. 
so yeah. he it was like he needed to know that he wasn't get, that he wasn't giving up that he wasn't going to get better and that this this was it that was going to happen and so the, the the difference between the two dying situations were so drastic it's really interesting i mean it it seems like the main difference is just acceptance mm-hmm. like ron could Absolutely. accept from the beginning that this is what's happening I'm not going to make it and I'm going to make the most of what I have left. Whereas Jacques was trying to get better the whole time rather than just like, oh, this is happening. So such a small adjustment of mindset, like such a drastically different experience. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's really helpful insight. Um, And I'm sorry, but we do need to wrap it up. So I so appreciate your time, Emily, and you sharing your stories and uh, your advice and all the good nuggets I've gotten from this interview. And I hope it's been really helpful for other people as well. But just lastly, um, do you want to tell people where they can find you, Emily? Yes, you can go to griefandhappiness.com. And that's where you'll find out about the Alliance and what we do there. And you can make reservations to come to the Sunday meetings there, register to come to the Sunday meetings there. Uh, I have a website, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. It has a lot of information about me there. And my podcast is Grief and Happiness Podcast. And I'd love to hear you listen. Great. Yes. I'll put all that stuff in the show notes so that you guys can find Emily and read her book and look forward to her upcoming book. Yeah, this has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad we could do it together. And that is a wrap, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. And I hope that this conversation with Emily gave you something helpful, useful that you can take away from it. I definitely know that I got a lot out of having this conversation with her. And just to clarify, as I'm wrapping things up, um, when she and I were discussing that happiness is a choice, I believe that that is true, but I don't say that to invalidate anyone's feelings. Just because I believe we can choose to be happy doesn't mean that your sadness is not valid. That doesn't mean that your anger or your frustration or your depression or your less than positive feelings are not valid and that you should just choose to be happy. It it takes time to process emotions to then get to the point where one realizes they have the choice and that they can make it. So please know that your feelings are valid no matter what they are. However, I do believe that happiness is a choice and it is a choice that I will be intentional with making every day along with some of the other good nuggets that she gave during our conversation. I hope you have an incredible rest of your day, whatever it holds for you. Thank you again so much for listening and I will see y'all next time. (music) 